0: So in a few days, we'll be entering into the most challenging part of this retreat, which is the rest of your life. And (laughs) I'm serious. (laughs) That is the most challenging, (laughs) and it really is the rest of our lives. And um, a lot of the anxiety and expectation and everything that starts to come up and I wouldn't have said this a few days ago, but now after talking to people, I know I'm not putting thoughts in your mind that weren't already there. <laughs> um, a lot of it, you know, has to, has to do with how, how, however you're feeling, somehow it's different from how you were before you came to the retreat, and either just projecting how it's going to stay like this in our life, or maybe we're going to get the hell out of this and get back to something that's more pleasant or whatever, but really... When I say it's the most challenging part, it is bringing the same quality, the same commitment to awakening moment to moment that we bring in a retreat is what we need to bring in our life. And while I do believe it's true that we don't need to leave our life behind to walk a path of awakening, you know that we don't need to go live in a nunnery or a monastery, I also think it's really important that we remember that we don't need to leave the path of awakening behind in order to live our life. (laughs) I think it's really (laughs) important (laughs) to remember this moment to moment. So I I think we say in, in our Western Dharma culture, I don't think I'm being cynical, it's hard for me to tell sometimes, but in our Western Dharma culture, we say and we mean it, but it's almost become too easy to say, And my life is my practice, and we mean it, sort of, (laughs) you know. And you see how hard practice is. What makes us think it's going to be any easier when everything gets faster and more complicated? Hmm. I didn't mean to be going so downhill in this talk. (laughs) I think this is a reflection of my inner circuit. Okay. (laughs) Anyway. I do want to impress that we need to bring the quality of deep, open-hearted commitment to the aspects of our life Because what does seem so obvious now, you know, it came up some in the groups today. I always experience it on retreat. It'll be obvious just how, how painful clinging is. Or it's obvious how everything changes. Or how can I ever forget that thoughts are ephemeral and have no intrinsic meaning, you know? It's just so clear that we can't imagine it all getting so solid again. Of course it does. And then it loosens up again. But what I want to talk about tonight <laughs> is one of many, but a tool—a tool of mindfulness, a specific focus of mindfulness—that has been quite helpful for me um, in bringing awareness to the more complex situations of everyday life, uh, and that's the, uh, mindfulness of intention, right intention or wise intention or wise thought or wise aspiration, different translations of the second step of the Eightfold Path. So I want to talk about it because it's kind of bringing the microscope into something that's such a subtle experience, as we've noticed here, but the subtleness can lead us into not respecting the fact that it's intention that gets us into both the beautiful things we do and also all the trouble that we get ourselves into. It all starts with intention. Incredibly important. So consciously bringing a mindfulness to intention, to why we're doing what we're doing in our life, in moments of choice, big and small, is a key link, I think, in living a life of awareness. It's the link, it's the way the Buddha placed it in delineating the Eightfold Path, which, if you remember, begins with wise or right understanding, right view, remember, is the view of how things are, which leads naturally to the second step, which is wise thought, you know, how we think about the world, or wise intention, the intentions that lead to the next three steps, speech and action, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. So it's the intention that's actually, in my experience, it certainly seems that way, the way the Buddha laid it out, it's the link between understanding or wisdom and how we manifest with ourselves, with other beings, with this planet. A very direct, immediate link. And as with all aspects we talk about on this path, it works in two ways. One in that the intentions naturally transform in the light of wisdom. and one way, there's nothing we have to do but pay attention. And on the other aspect, of course, there's the commitment to cultivate and develop and pay attention. So that in one way, we don't have to do anything. <laughs> and on the other side, we have to pay attention every minute of our lives. Somehow those two come together. <laughs> I know for myself, probably for some of you, if I, if I just don't really take care with paying attention to why I'm doing what I'm doing, even with having a good heart, I'd say basically all of us here have good hearts relative to some of the stuff that goes on on this planet, you know. And we see what happens when left to its own devices without any commitment to awareness, The greed, hatred, and delusion just spring up, get in their old grooves, and run the show. All we have to do is pay attention for that to begin to transform. So intention, sometimes called right thought, wise thought, is an interesting place because it's a place where we can explore how the completely empty, ephemeral nature of a thought can suddenly become so solid that we're doing and saying something that given a little more attention, we really wouldn't have wanted to do or say that thing. Or vice versa. A really kind, loving thought, intention can also strengthen into intention that leads to action. You know, sometimes you'll find yourself surprised doing a really kind or generous thing. Thinking, oh, Is that me? I'm not used to doing something like that. So intention's the place where emptiness comes to meet the relative nature of life as it manifests in speech and action. You know that quotation from Padmasambhava that Joseph read the other night? Although my view is as spacious as the sky, the emptiness, the ephemeral nature of all experience my respect for karma, for action, and my respect for cause and effect is as fine as grains of barley flour. How do we hold both? They come together in right thought, right intention. So, we talked about in the instructions, and a lot of you were looking at in your practice, that very subtle expression of intention that's almost prior to thought, you know, just that subtle about to direction, inclination of the mind that leads to speech and action, that uh. Sometimes it's a little stronger, a little more clear, and it actually manifests as thought. I'm getting out of here. And in the broader level, sometimes wise aspiration you could think of intention um, really in the macro, like the aspiration for a lifetime or the aspiration. Remember when Marcia talked about um, back in the time of Dipankara Buddha, the, when the being who became Gotama Buddha, who was a mendicant then, had the great aspiration to spend all those eons and eons of lifetimes to become a Buddha that was one mind moment that had a lot of power, (laughs) fed into succeeding mind moments, but that's kind of like the really broadest aspect of intention. And what's interesting about intention, as with everything, it's simply arising as an effect of previous causes and as a cause for the next effects. In other words, it's enmeshed in a whole series of cause and effects, doesn't arise alone. For example, there's the intention to scratch your knee. That would be arising due to previous physical sensations that are unpleasant, maybe aversion, maybe it's noticed, maybe it's not, leading to the intention to move the hand and scratch. So intentions don't arise in isolation. And they arise as a result of and together with the whole variety of mental states, right? And that's what determines in the aspect of karma, in the aspect of the the psychology as the Buddha talked about it, whether an action is wholesome or unwholesome, skillful or unskillful karmically, has nothing to do with the effect, with the result of the action, because that's out of our control. Which is interesting, because mostly that's what we focus on. You know, if we get the desired result, then good, it was a good action. You know, if it doesn't, it was bad. The Buddha is saying that's out of our control. The place of karma, of wholesomeness or unwholesomeness, is in the intention, is in what states of heart and mind are causing this intention to arise or is it coming together with, right? So this is one reason why judging of other people is so completely useless. Because you can't tell from the outside why someone's really doing something. And we're lucky if we can tell why we're really doing something. And that's really where we could put our energy in paying attention. But just some example, an example, you take the same action of saying something to somebody that's a bit difficult to say or that's hard for them to hear. That can come from such a wide range of intentions, couldn't it, both wholesome and unwholesome. It could be really scary for you to say, but out of really deep compassion, because you really think it will help that person to know you say it, you know, and that would be a really compassionate, courageous action. You could say the same thing out of knowing that it's going to be hard for them to hear and kind of being glad that it's going to be hard for them to hear, you know. You could say it out of revenge. You could say it out of real anger, you know. It's going to be hard for them to hear, but at least maybe they'll stop doing this thing and leave me alone, you know. You could say it out of a kind of a pride, you know, that you're able to point out to that person their faults, could say it out of just complete delusion, complete obliviousness to how it's going to affect that person. It just comes in your mind and you say it, you know. Or we could say it with good intentions, really trying to help, but with uh, an obliviousness, a neglect of whether it's a useful and helpful time to say that to that person. So, you know, you come in, they've had a horrible day at work, they're really busy, they're cooking dinner, the kids are screaming, and you say, I have something really important I think you need to hear about your behavior last week. You know? (laughs) not so helpful. So you get the sense of what I mean. We can't evaluate even our own actions by how they look. Forget about somebody else's. And so intention is the key. The Buddha um, specifically described what he means by wise or right thought, right intention in several suttas. I mean, he's quite specific. That right intention counteracts the unwise intentions or thoughts of greed of ill will, and of cruelty, right? So he says, what, friends, is right intention? Intention of renunciation, which counteracts the intention of greed. Intention of, let's put in the Theravada way, intention of non-ill will. You could read that as metta. Counteracts intentions of ill will. And intentions of compassion, of non-cruelty, counterbalances intentions of cruelty. You notice there's not an intention of non-delusion because he also says that delusion, moha, isn't counterbalanced by an intention, but by wise seeing, by wisdom. So I can't really say, I will now have an intention of wise seeing, but simply in the connection, in the doing, in the moment of mindfulness, that's there. Clear seeing is there. So, that's right intention, very specific. And first comes right view. He says, this is the Buddha again, right view comes first. And how does right view come first? One understands that wrong intention is wrong intention and that right intention is right intention. I mean, that sounds simplistic, but it actually isn't. That is one's right view. I think a huge amount of what goes on in our practice here is allowing us to come to understand wrong intention or unskillful intention as wrong or unskillful. And if those words catch the mind, you know, it kind of echoes of I'm bad because it's wrong, or right intention means I'm good, Think of wrong or unskillful intention. Translate that to mean intention that brings suffering to oneself or to another. Take away the blame and just think it's wrong in that it causes suffering to myself or another when I think, speak, or act with intentions of greed, of ill will, or cruelty. It's that simple. And that wise intention, intentions of renunciation, of metta, of compassion. Don't bring suffering. Bring joy and peace to ourself or another. So it's basically back in the realm of the really practical. What brings happiness in our life? What brings happiness to others and what doesn't? And really, that's what we've been seeing like a hundred million times every day, isn't it? Sometimes. We don't quite notice it but we have to pay attention enough that we do, that when we're acting out of greed, we suffer. Sooner or later, we notice that. When we act or speak or even spin in thoughts of ill will or cruelty, we suffer. And the opposite leads to no suffering. That's really what he means by right view comes first, that we get that on some level, but not totally and completely, but we get it enough to motivate us to be willing to continue to pay attention, to be willing to cultivate wise intention. So as I said, we need to cultivate, but they also, our intentions, our attitude to life, our attitude to -to moment-to-moment experience, which is all life is, transforms naturally through right view, through understanding. So that when, for example, we notice that we're really suffering from the greediness of our mind, when we really see that in that moment, the heart naturally lets go. Because greediness comes from thinking it's going to make us happy. When we really notice it's making us miserable, at least for that moment, something lets go. That's wise intention of renunciation. And at the same time, it requires effort. Again, the Buddha. One makes an effort to abandon wrong intention. Remember, he doesn't say one makes an effort to hate wrong intention. One simply makes the effort to abandon it. Just let it alone. And to enter upon right intention. This is one's right effort. Mindfully, one abandons wrong intention. Mindfully, one enters upon and abides in right intention. This is one's right mindfulness. Thus, these three states run and circle around right intention. That is, right view, right effort, and right mindfulness. So you see right there, he's brought in the whole Eightfold Path, circling around right intention. Right view, right effort, right mindfulness, and of course, the speech and actions are the direct result of right intention. He doesn't mention samadhi. But you need that to even pay attention, to notice the intention in the first place. So, What's so powerful about noticing a moment of intention, whether it's the subtle moment you might see in a sitting here, or a larger intention as we're making a choice or about to act in our life, Is that that moment of mindfulness can be a powerful moment of transformation of how we're living, of how we're relating, of how we're going to speak and act. Because in that moment of recognizing what's leading to what I'm going to say, what I'm going to do, there's a moment there as if a moment of choice, you know? And that's where the wise intention can either arise naturally or we can, a little bit, cultivate it. Example in the walking meditation, and I think I've used this example before, where you're walking, suddenly there's an unpleasant, or not so suddenly, unpleasant sensation, in the feet, in the back, or you're tired. And without quite noticing it, there's the thought, I've had enough, I'm out of here. Out of here might mean a cup of tea. Out of here might mean into Barry out of here might be on the Greyhound bus to New York City. It really depends how unpleasant and how strong the thought is. Unnoticed, well, at least you're having the cup of tea. Noticed, there's really the moment of, oh, I see that's aversion. I hate this. I'm going to go have a cup of tea. And in seeing that, without a blaming or a judging, one can tune in, oh, aversion, I don't really want to be driven by that. And there's just the stepping back. Mindfulness is again present in that noticing the aversion. We're meeting that intention with Satipanya, with mindfulness wisdom, you know. The mindfulness allows us to connect. Oh, that's aversion. Without judgment, with honesty, with clear seeing, and the panya, the wisdom, the right understanding like, ah, oh, I really don't want to be driven by aversion. I really don't want to act out of aversion. I'll just take another step. You know? And two seconds later, we've completely forgotten that whole scenario, and things are fine again. It's a little moment. I know it's a lot simpler, and I'm not saying it's simple, but it's simpler here in a little moment like that, You know, to see how with mindfulness of intention we have a moment of choice. Of course, in bigger actions, in more complex interactions in our daily life, Of course, it's a lot more complicated, but still, our whole life is nothing but this moment, this moment. Even when it seems really complicated, it can always be reduced to this moment, because really that's all there is. The rest is thoughts, past and future. So, no matter how complicated it is, what we've been practicing here, that willingness, that ability to bring satipanya to the moment of about to and honestly look at why, that is possible in our life at times when we can remember. It really takes a commitment and it takes the ability to remember to be present. And being present isn't as hard as remembering to be present, you know? And that's what we've been practicing here. That comes easier. But in moments of presence, we see that we do have a choice. It doesn't mean that the natural, wise, loving, kind, renunciate intention is always going to spontaneously arise the second that we turn our attention on something. Oh, I'm aversive. Oh, yes. Yes. May I be happy, you know, immediately. Sometimes it does happen, and that's really amazing. But we can have the wisdom to know, okay, this is tough right now, but I don't want to act from this place. One of my favorite stories from that commitment is from Sister Chan Kong, who works with Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, the nun who's been working with him and really since she was 16 in Vietnam. Quite an activist person, and with a deep total commitment to mindfulness and compassionate action. So in her autobiography, she was talking about how she was on a letter-writing campaign. I mean, she and Thich Nhat Hanh both haven't been able to go back to Vietnam since the middle of the Vietnamese War. But she was on a letter-writing campaign whenever she heard that Monks and nuns and artists were all being arrested at one period. And so she was on a campaign where she would write to the government whenever she heard about an arrest. But she wouldn't do it from a place of anger. And that took a huge commitment to cultivate wise intention. That's what she says. Every time I received news of a new arrest, I became angry. And I knew that I had to do walking meditation. Now, is that what we do when we feel angry? (laughs) Yes. I know I need to do walking meditation. It's not a bad idea. Sometimes I would walk several hours to regain my calm. And she's not in a three-month meditation retreat either. Sometimes I needed several days or even weeks to relax my heartbeat, knowing how unfairly the authorities have acted in arresting such a lovely monk, nun, or artist. I always waited until I felt serene before beginning any campaign. Thanks to this serenity, my words were gentle but firm, and people found it easier to cooperate. Lots of examples like that, both in the degree, and this is after having spent 30 years at least of her life in deep commitment to peaceful activism and mindfulness, you know. It doesn't just become totally, totally unthinking second nature. Our commitment is to the cultivation. Our commitment is to really knowing deep in our heart what leads to happiness for ourselves and for others. And having the commitment to do the best we can, to speak and act from that place, and to know that a lot of the time we won't and be willing to pay attention then, too, because each moment's a new moment, you know. So she's really angry. I'm sure, although she doesn't say so, that she learned by writing from an angry place that it doesn't work, either for her or for the people listening, you know. So it takes commitment, but we can do it. And alternatively, if we're not willing to respect our intentions. Respect the power of renunciation, of metta, of karuna. If we don't want to pay attention, we can't get away with it because if we're not cultivating wise intention, guess what? We are cultivating. That's what's kind of scary to me. If I just let my rind run loose, we're cultivating greed, hatred, and delusion. Says the Buddha, O bhikkhus, Whatever a bhikkhu frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of his or her mind. Obvious, isn't it? We talk about the grooves. Well, that's what he's saying. If he frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire, he has abandoned the thought of renunciation to cultivate the thought of sensual desire. If his mind inclines to thoughts of ill will, thoughts of cruelty, he's abandoned the thought of non-cruelty to cultivate the thought of cruelty, and then his mind inclines to thoughts of cruelty. And, of course, just the reverse. If he frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of renunciation, in that moment he's abandoned the thought of sensual desire to cultivate the thought or the intention of renunciation. And he's just talking on the level of thought on the level of thought here. It's really powerful. So we know we can't control every thought. We do know that now, right? And we, But to even get upset for a minute about a previous thought, for a minute to start berating yourself or hating yourself or blaming yourself because a previous thought wasn't good, again, you're falling into cultivating Cruelty, thoughts of cruelty, thoughts of ill will, you know? So no matter where we can start paying attention, that's the place we start. Can I cultivate even a thought? doesn't even have to quite move into speech and action. There's one place where the Buddha says that. He says, I say that even the inclination of mind towards wholesome states is of great benefit. He's not even saying you're in the wholesome state. He's just saying the inclination of mind towards wholesome states is of great benefits. So then what should be said of bodily and verbal acts that come from such states of mind? So just the willingness to incline our minds to renunciation, to metta, to compassion is really transformative Because the seed of intention in our hearts, in our minds, eventually it flowers, you know. You know Ruth Denison's um, succinct description of karma? You must have heard it. Karma means you don't get away with nothing, darling. The seed of intention will ultimately flower. Basically means we can't hide from ourselves. We can't pretend we're feeling loving when we really hate our guts. You know, we have to see honestly what's happening. I've taught several retreats um, in a a retreat in New Mexico that were specifically for, quote, burned-out environmentalists. And it was really, it's really quite interesting to see, not always, but often how some of the people who would come to these retreats for 10 days really being in the forefront of the environmental movement, you know, working really hard for years with extreme dedication and seeing how, in whatever way they began, their being lawyers or advocates or whatever, basically from quite good intentions of caring for the planet, of really sensing, feeling, living our interconnectedness with all life, really wanting to make this a better world to live in and so on, but meeting with, I mean, it seems like a really very intense life, meeting with enormous greed and anger and frustration day after day after day, that for many of these people, even though what they're doing still seemed like a very wholesome thing to do, they could even express it that they were loving life on the planet, but living from a place of real anger and frustration. You know, loving the planet, but their heart was so closed that anger was spewing out all over their family, all over their life, all over themselves. And it just shows that even trying to do something that seems really wholesome, we can't sidestep the moment-to-moment intentionality, the attitude with which we relate. And it's tough. Nobody's saying it's easy, it's hard. But we can just step back and notice on the moment-to-moment level. That's what I think is such a great gift of an intensive retreat time like this. I know, well, I don't know. I imagine most of you have seen the intensity of ill will and cruelty and greed that can come up in our minds here about when you stand back and look at it pretty insignificant things in the big picture. In the little picture, they're not insignificant, you know, as one yogi said to me, this is how world wars start over whether the windows are open or closed, you know, or whether we step on the cracks and the squeaks in the upper walking room when the rest of us are sitting. Over the little things, you know, so much hatred and anger and greed can be engendered. Somebody's sitting in your seat in the dining room that you've sat in every day for the last five weeks, and they know it. They have to be doing it on purpose. (laughs) They couldn't possibly not know that that's your seat, you know. And to watch what comes up. I I wouldn't denigrate it or say, you know, it's because we're all regressed and we're all so childish and, you know, our life has shrunk to this little place. It has shrunk. But the... (laughs) No, that's okay. I think that's a good thing. That's what lets us see. See, for example, take if you're really working in environmental movement, it's, it's kind of easier to miss the suffering and the intensity of the anger, the really destructive aspect of it, because the issue is so big and complex and powerful, you know. So it's easy to kind of skip over the intention part and focus on result. Here, about whether you beat that person ahead of you to get the last orange, there's some way when you step back, you can't really go there about how important the issue is. And we have to turn around. It might take a couple of days, but you have to somewhere say, maybe I need to look at how I'm relating to the situation. Maybe that's got something to do with the suffering here. In three months, we're bound to get that message. That's why it's good, it's long. So I'm serious. When this yogi said to me, you know, this is how world wars start, I I don't think that's an exaggeration, you know. When we see how strong the grooves of greed or cruelty or ill will are over little things, imagine if somebody, you know, destroyed our home, took our land, killed our relatives. I mean, imagine, I can't even imagine, you know. So this is good. We start with little things. It's hard enough, but it's not insignificant. It's not unimportant. It's exactly the same mechanism for the difficult, complex situations that are going to come up in our life. This is where we start. And luckily, hopefully, besides having that commitment to cultivate, as with Sister Chan Kong, hopefully we also begin to notice that as the as our understanding, our clear seeing, our wisdom is developing and it is, you can't measure it. You don't know. You're in the middle of it. We tend sometimes to just see the so-called kalesas a lot stronger than you can notice the wisdom. But believe me, a lot, a lot of wisdom and understanding and clear seeing is is shining in all of you. And you notice it in little things. Like someone described to me, they were having a kind of, uh, you know, unpleasant, un healthy experience. They didn't like it. And they noticed the mind's habit to go do something to dull out, not to feel it, you know. And without getting into a big deal, as soon as they noticed that, another thought came and they said, oh, but I don't need to do that now. I can just be with this. So what if it's boring? That's little, but it's huge, if you know what I mean that's really a moment of the natural transformation of attitude of intention and it's happening here a lot it's really beautiful for us sitting on this side you know getting to talk with everybody through all this time because again you 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 each of us when we're on retreat you know we're right in the middle, and everything that's happening today is huge. You really can't have a very good overview, and you don't need one, you know. Forget looking for an overview. But for us, like just in the groups today, it was so um, inspiring to me. And probably the people in the groups wouldn't think what we talked about was inspiring, but to me it was inspiring to see these subtle shifts in attitude. Like in one group, somehow we got talking about um, the hell realm of the dining room at meal times, and how um, really seeing somebody was saying it was really—I really liked it. How um, the meals that you that this person really liked, the really good ones, the pizza or the ice cream or whatever, that seemed to lend the promise of so much pleasure and happiness. That paying attention while eating and noticing, this is my words now, but noticing how much greed and how much grasping was going on, even at the time of having, you know, the pizza or the ice cream, that actually by paying attention, it's like, wow, this isn't even pleasant. (laughs) Like, it really isn't worth it. Now, if you don't go further and add on top of it, I'm a stupid jerk because I'm caught in the craving, that's extra. And that didn't happen in this discussion. It's just like, wow, look at this one. I really look. It isn't even pleasant. That's a moment of natural renunciation. That's the moment where the habit of greed just lets go. And notice, you could still be eating the pizza in that moment. Renunciation is about intention. It's not really so much about the outward appearance. You could look like the biggest renunciate in the world and be totally attached to what people think of you or how you look or, you know, I'm not going to break the eighth precept even if I'm falling on my face from low blood sugar and my medical condition so clearly says I have to eat at night, you know, it's bad for my health. I still won't do it because then I wouldn't be a good yogi, for example. I wouldn't know if that's renunciation. I'd question (laughs) if that's actually renunciation or a kind of conceit, you know? And so renunciation is really the natural, joyful releasing of attachment. As Geshe Rapton used to say, renunciation is really the expression of love and compassion for ourselves because we're renouncing the craving, the attachment that keeps us in suffering. So the intention of renunciation, just in that moment, oh, letting go of the clinging to that pizza. You might keep eating it or you might not, it's really irrelevant, you know? So renunciation is a relief, not a punishment. And I'm sure then you've all noticed, you might not have even thought of it as renunciation. But renunciation in terms of wise intention, that moment of the renouncing of the craving, the renouncing of the clinging, the renouncing of the greed that keeps us bound to suffering. And keep it moment to moment, you know. It's not about wise intention of renunciation means now I have to figure out how I'm going to renounce for the rest of my life pizza or whatever, how I'm going to go back and live this really simple life because now I have learned that craving leads to suffering. So I'm going to set up a life that doesn't feed into craving, you know, and you get into this whole suffering scenario. It's moment to moment, moment to moment. Why is intention of renunciation when you feel that clutching of wanting and the satipanya is there and you tune into the wanting like, oh, I really don't need this. The wanting we don't need. Whether you get the thing you want or not, who cares anymore? Just the wanting. I don't need that. And there's peace. There's ease. And incidentally, we're a lot nicer to be around. So it's good for other people too. My favorite, actually my favorite story about renunciation, the joy of it, probably heard this from Ananda Mayama who was regarded as a uh, great saint in India Um, in this century, and uh, some businessmen, I think, were were coming to her, and as is the want, you know, just praising her. Oh, you're so wonderful. You live such a simple renunciate life, and just on and on and on. And she started laughing and laughing, and the more they praised her, the more she laughed. Finally, they said, what are you laughing at? And she said, me, the renunciate. It's you who are the renunciates. By living the way you are, you're renouncing the great joy of divine presence, you know. I'm not renouncing anything, you know. That's really the spirit of, of wise renunciation, wise intention. And similarly, with the wise intentions of metta and karuna, counteracting ill will and cruelty. Sure, there's huge in the world And sometimes it can be easy, or one can fall into feeling here that there's been a lot of suffering. Sure, a great deal of the retreat is coming face to face with our own demons in whatever way. Those manifest physical, emotional, mental. Can just be sleepiness, you know. Whatever it is, it's easy also to same same as with um, greed to fall into thinking that I'm being a bit self-indulgent, so wrapped up in my own suffering, you know, and there's nothing we've gone through here that can compare to the amount of cruelty, the enormous suffering that's going on in the world. And in a way, that's true. But again, please don't denigrate the powerful possibilities that come from meeting whatever difficult internal, external, physical, mental experience you've gone through here, or are going through at this moment perhaps, meeting it with mindfulness, with satipanya, with wisdom, is again the place where our habitual tendencies of ill will, anger, hostility, cruelty, whether it's to ourselves or just in our minds to someone else here those are really transformed through mindfulness, through how you meet your own suffering, you know, with compassion, with, if you think of metta as friendliness, as acceptance. I'm not saying you meet every moment of suffering with this beaming, suffusing, oh, I love, you know, every moment of what's happening. And I know we can get into that, kind of like the exaggeration of metta. But acceptance Simple open-hearted friendliness and patience are equally expressions of metta and the expression of compassion of simply not exercising cruelty towards ourselves or others in the face of suffering. It might be that the suffering seems small. Again, you didn't get that orange or whatever. You ate too much ice cream, you know. You can't really get behind the story But the suffering is still the same emotions that are engendered in our life, that are engendered in other people. How we meet it here is where wisdom and understanding and our intentions begin to transform. Sometimes I feel really deeply, seen it in my own experience and from talking to a lot of people, Some retreats, you know, if you do a lot of retreats, they're all a little different or a lot different from each other. And some retreats, when I look back, I would really dub in my mind as that was a real dukkha retreat. You know, that was a real struggling retreat, a real suffering retreat. And then there's all different kinds of dukkha retreats, which the dukkha could be, I never got into it. I never got concentrated. That can be a huge dukkha retreat. I mean, that's one of the big ways that we are really cruel to ourselves because our experience didn't come up to some idea we made up of what it should come up to. And we hate ourselves for three months. Or it can be really old, traumatic pain. It can be physical pain. It can be sleepiness. It can be whatever the range of a so-called Dukha retreat There's retreats that aren't, you know, that were kind of smooth sailing or really interesting or had really nice states or whatever. Of course, given the choice, if you could, you know, take one or the other at the beginning of a retreat, you know, probably most of us would go for the nice states. But when I look back and all my history of practice, well, you can't ever really pinpoint I learned this from that moment. But I have a deep conviction that the retreats that were really a struggle, where a lot of hard stuff went on, those are the ones where my understanding really deepened, where the sense of equanimity, where the sense of patience really got strong, and where compassion and metta were really, really developed. It's easy to feel compassion and metta when everything's groovy, when you're shining in white light. Who wouldn't feel compassion and metta? That poor shh lump over there, you know? Obviously, they're not as happy as I am. But when you're having a really lousy retreat and whatever that means to you, and you can feel, really feel kindness and compassion and metta for yourself, that's real compassion and metta, you know? And that's when it's really gonna come through in the crunch. That's when our intentions, our understanding, are really transforming. And it's only the attitude, the understanding that's going to inform our life. All the groovy experiences are gone. As Jack Cornfield says, they're all back with Cleopatra. Even the ones that happened a minute ago, gone. The inclination of our mind and heart, the strengthening of that understanding and propensity, that's what's going to inform how we meet the next moment, how we meet this moment. How we meet a difficult situation. So, you can be really happy if you are sitting there thinking, This is the crappiest retreat I ever did. You can be really happy <laughs> because you're going to come out of it a lot deeper and stronger. <laughs> you think I'm kidding, it might not notice it right away, but it'll last longer. And really, this transformation comes from the willingness to simply meet this moment of our experience directly. It's back to mindfulness again, kindness, just as it is. I really feel deeply that in the power of the direct meeting, the satipani in the moment, that the wisdom really does transform how we relate to things. You've all seen it. See down in the news, this is a couple of years ago, I think, Uh, they were talking about Clinton had gone to Africa, he'd gone to Rwanda. This is what, a couple of years after the seeming end of all those horrible massacres there. And he'd gone to Rwanda and uh, was saying on the news how he'd talked with a lot of people and he'd met and talked with some people who had been attacked in the massacre but had lived, but who were quite wounded, you know. And how he was saying publicly making a speech saying I really kind of got it, that we're all responsible, you know, that we knew that was going on and we're all responsible. You can't just say it's about Rwanda, it's about all of us in the world, which is obvious. But still I thought, it's not like, what made him say that now and not two years ago when it was actually happening? And not to get into what he should or shouldn't have done, but what made the change that he said it then And in reflecting on it, I felt like uh, what made sense to me is that really it was coming face to face with the actual suffering, you know, seeing and talking with someone who was really directly involved. I remember, again, Sister Chan Kong talking about, during the Vietnam War, and seeing how, you know, it was like a war on television, um, which in Rwanda we read about it. You know, you read about it. It's not the same as being there. And Sister Chang Kong was saying you'd see the stuff happening in villages or a mother holding her wounded baby or something on TV, and it's really powerful, it really moves us, but she says it's nothing like being there, you know, it just isn't the same. We don't get the immediacy of the experience, you know, and so when we're really face-to-face, and now I'm coming back to here. You know, and again, talking about huge suffering and then we're talking about our self-hatred about back pain. But if you don't get into comparing, if you can bring that same immediacy of kind attention to the back pain and the self-hatred, that's the moment of potential transformation from ill will, from cruelty, to compassion, to kindness, to the ability to be present, without flinching away. I really believe that that's the capability that allows one to go out and keep finding the inner resources to do whatever we need to do, whether it's back to the environmental work I was talking about, whether it's just meeting your kids day to day when they're cranky, whether it's whatever it is we do, to keep finding the resources to meet the suffering, whether it's so-called mine or so-called yours, and meet it with kindness, meet it with Compassion with friendliness rather than ill will and cruelty. It's huge. And pay my children. Learning how to be kind to ourselves, learning how to respect ourselves is important. The reason it's important is that fundamentally, When we look into our own hearts and begin to discover what is confused and what is brilliant, what is bitter and what is sweet, it isn't just ourselves that we're discovering. We're discovering the universe. When we discover the Buddha that we are, we realize that everything and everyone is a Buddha. When we regard thoughts and emotions with humor and openness. That's how we perceive the universe. We're not just talking about our individual liberation, but how to help the community we live in, how to help our families, our country, the whole continent, not to mention the world and the galaxy and as far as we want to go. There's an interesting transition that occurs naturally and spontaneously. We begin to find that to the degree that there is bravery in ourselves, the willingness to look, to point directly at our own hearts, and that to the degree that there is kindness towards ourselves, then there is confidence that we can actually forget ourselves and open to the world. So let's sit quietly for a few minutes.